A quick note before we get started. Did you know we have an email list? Go to hpleadershippodcast.com and enter your email into the form at the bottom left to sign up. Get our PDF on common obstacles and teamwork sent right to your inbox. Subscribers get first listens on new shows and exclusive content. Sign up today, hpleadershippodcast.com. On episode 43 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, is it better to control or empower? Empowering employees scares type A's, right? <laughs> so they, they, they're not a big fan of it. They know they need to do it. Right. And it would take a lot less work on their part if they actually empowered employees. But the thought of doing it scares them. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Insights and information from world-class leadership experts. So today, what are we talking about, Chip? I'm in the process of working with a handful of different clients right now, and there seems to be a common denominator that I'm running into, and that is I get some of the harder cases when it comes to working with senior leaders. Senior leaders can be uh, type A personalities, very mm-hmm. strong drivers. They tend to be very much, you know, they've moved to the top of the food chain, so to speak, by being a very confident person and sometimes almost uh, bulldozing their way into a leadership role through being aggressive and speaking their mind and, and they're not very passive and right but that also brings on its own set of problems and at times you know that can be that self-awareness of you know kind of steamrolling over people seems to be an issue that is a blind spot for a lot of senior leaders and so i get asked at times to work with type a personalities that are very strong drivers, which is what's got them there, but it also can be a problem. Right. So one of the things that I have to start with is the positive side of being a type A personality. And so we'll go through some of that. But then we typically always get down to some of the differences that we talk about in our leadership development work that we do with companies is the difference between a controller and an empower. Mm-hmm. And empowering employees scares type A's, right? <laughs> so they, they, they're not a big fan of it. They know they need to do it. Right. And it would take a lot less work on their part if they actually empowered employees. Right. Uh, but the thought of doing it scares them right. quite a bit. So, you know, one of the first things that I do is I help them go through and understand what do controllers do? So what tactics do they use to accomplish their objectives? What would you think a controller's personality would be like? Someone who does not like to give trust and full authority on projects that they are trying to get accomplished. They kind of have the mentality, well, I'm going to do the best job, obviously, and if I have to give it to so-and-so, they're not going to do as good a job. Yeah, and where do you think that comes from? I'm not sure. Well, in their past, right. you know, we can only make sense of today by things that have happened to us in the past. So okay. we, we pull from these file cabinets in our brain of things that have happened in the past to bring us to where we are today. So and they've so, been let down before maybe? Yeah. So over the years, if they have empowered other people or they call empower, have other people do projects and the projects are wrong mm-hmm. over a period of time, they tend to say, this is taking way too much time. I'm just going to do it myself if I want it done right. So controllers over, you know, and it's through spaced repetition is how we create habit. Mm-hmm. What they do is they impose external controls on their followers or subordinates to kind of keep them in line, to manage what they want them to do. So right. They, 
So they so they put these boxes around them in a sense. They some of them tend to micromanage. So they're very much in the weeds on everything, and they don't give them a lot of room to kind of do their own stuff. They they're very controlling that way. So what do you think the effects of that? have on the followers? Well, as someone who's had projects before that I've tried to delegate and they haven't gone well, I would say the stress of feeling like, oh, I have to do everything myself. And even though maybe I have a team of people, I don't know how much I can trust them because I've been burned in the past. And so now I'm stressed out and I'm overworked and I don't appreciate the people that I have working for me. Yeah. What do you think are the beliefs behind controlling leaders? Why have they become that way? It's not a trick question, I promise. (laughs) Do you believe that it's just the way their DNA is? Are they just naturally a controlling type personality? Or over a period of time, have they, through trial and error, conditioned themselves to be that way? Or do you think it's just they've modeled themselves after other leaders? What would you think? I think it could be both, but I feel like the people that are the domineering, the controlling type people get stuff done, so that's why they've found themselves in a place of leadership to begin with. Yeah, but see, I'm going to use you as a case study. You came out of the military. So before we met, you were in the military. Now, in the military, is it a very much a control and demand type environment? It is, for the most part. But there's also different levels, and you have to give that you know amount of autonomy to your team in order to get things done. Because there's not enough time, there's too much going on to really you know, 100% micromanage. And the best bosses that I've worked for in the military were not controlling types, were, were trusting types. And they, it was because they built up a sense of, you know, they were proud of the work that I was doing. I wanted to do better work for them. And there were a couple, I can think vividly in my head, very much controlling types. And they typically didn't do well. There was a lot of animosity in the division when they were trying to control every aspect of what was going on. And usually it it kind of tripped up and slowed the process. Yeah. Honestly. So, well, what I find is that controllers control based through a fear paradigm. They're fearful that if they don't control the situation, that it'll blow back on them, that they'll be in trouble and fearful of their job, fearful that things will be done right. Fearful that, that the accountability falls on them first and foremost, and Mm -hmm. then everybody kind of below there. So, if they are managing or leading out of fear, it, they're going to have more of a controlling type attitude. Think of a parent. Mm-hmm. If they're fearful that their child is you know, in trouble somewhere, they're going to control that child a lot closer than if they don't feel fear. If that paradigm isn't what makes them nervous all the time and they're not fearful, they're going to let their child do a lot more, have them, you know, a a little longer rope, so to speak. So similarly, is it kind of like a a continuing cycle where you trust somebody a little bit more, you test the capabilities, and then you give them more rope? Yes. For someone who naturally is a controller, it is a lot more work than someone who naturally has a higher level of the ability to empower and trust others. You know, it really comes down to trust, and trust is a huge component of leadership because leadership is truly about a relationship with with that person Mm -hmm. so if you have a strong level of trust you communicate openly and effectively you have a good relationship with them you're going to tend to empower them more because with communication and trust you feel like this person wants to do a good job they're going to do a good job and i'm going to trust that that they're doing the best that they possibly can and that uh 
that I don't need to control and manage the environment and what they do. I can empower them to some extent. Is it kind of like the court system, you know, innocent until proven guilty? Do you see, you know, you trust them until they prove they can't be trustworthy? Yes. But as we've talked about before, trust is really made up of competency mm-hmm. is one pillar of trust. So are they competent at what they do? And, and, and integrity and compassion are the three things that make up, you know, what we the three pillars of trust in our program. And when we talk about competency, competency sometimes is a lack of training by the leader's part, a lack of resources given to that employee, a lack of team support. You know, they they have way too much on their plate, time management, all kinds of different issues that can play into the competency. So I can empower you all I want to, but if I continue to pile more and more and more on your plate, your competency level is going to start to drop because you can't manage and do everything that you need to. So my level of trust sometimes needs to come, you know, with a balance between the reward for a good job is just more work sometimes. <laughs> so how do we balance that with, you know, communication and understanding? Am I a controlling person or am I really just empowering? If we were to look at the characteristics of empowering leaders, how do you think they would be different than the controlling leaders? I think they would really understand the capabilities of their team and they would delegate the different tasks that need to be done in the organization based on what they think each person can do, but then also allow for them to kind of stretch and grow and maybe do a little bit more than they thought possible and also to kind of back them up. So not so much say, you know, here's your stuff, see you later, but say, you know, here's the task I I am setting out for you. Is there any obstacles you see that I could help you with in completing your task without me, you know, coming in and doing the task for you. Yeah. So it starts first and foremost, not so much down in the weeds with every single task, but creating a clear vision and goals and and a strategy to get there is kind of the leader's job. And then they say, okay, here's what we want to accomplish. Here's what the goal is. Um, Here's kind of our timeframes. Here's the resources that we have available. Now, what do you all think, you know, it'll take to get there? And through collaboration, they say, okay, great. I believe that you can do this part of it. I'll do this part of it myself and we'll hit the goal. And I don't need to be down in the weeds all the time, kind of looking at everything on a minute by minute basis and managing and, and, and out of fear. I trust that we're clear about our goals. We're clear about the strategy. We're clear about what resources we need to get it. And I believe that you'll do a good job. Is it important to set like expectations and and deadlines and stuff like that and to keep talking with each other as you're going through the process? Because I feel like the bad part of the empowering leader is the people that just their hands off and they go, get it done. And then I'll talk to you in a month. And, you know, but if you talk to them too much, you're like the micromanager. So where is the happy medium there? It's again, it it all comes back to that level of trust to where the person that's doing the job that's been empowered has a high enough level of trust with their manager or their leader to be able to check in on a regular basis or as frequently as they feel they need to, to get some feedback on, am I on the right track? Here's what we said our goal was, you know, it's a month long goal. I'm a week into it. Can we sit down and talk about what I've done so far and give me some feedback? Mm -hmm. Am I on track? Am I not on track? Because if we wait till a month from now to get together and talk about anything, it's going to end up either really good or really bad. There's typically very few gray areas in there, but that again, constant communication, constant feedback, that level of trust is, is done through that. And 
you know, there was a study done years ago and they took sixth graders and, and they had two different schools that they did this with. And the first school that they went to at recess, they said to all the sixth graders, uh, you have 45 minutes for recess. And they put them out on the, on this uh, big open field and there was absolutely no fence around it. And they said, okay, you have 45 minutes to go play, go for it. And we'll be inside. If you need us, come knock on the door. At another school down the street, they did the exact same experiment, but in this playground, they had a fence around it. And they said to the kids, you have 45 minutes to play, go for it. We're inside. If you need us, let us know. So when they did these two experiments, what they found was the playground with no fence on it. The kids tended to stay closer to the school. They bunched together and they didn't kind of run off. Now there was one or two rogue, you know, kids that there always are. Yep. That took off running and, and they were gone. Uh, but they tended to play it safe because they didn't know what the boundaries were. Now in the school where there was actual fence around the playground and they said to the kids, you have 45 minutes, here's the fence, here's the playground, have fun all of the kids tended to explore every square inch of that playground because they felt empowered within a boundary that they could do whatever they wanted to. Now, again, one or two of the kids climbed the fence and jumped and ran. Uh, (laughs) But for the most part, most of them really spread out and explored it. In that study, what it proved was is that if you're going to empower people, that if you can give them a boundary and say, here's what our goal is, here's the strategy, here's the equipment, here's everything that we need to do it, but... Here's kind of the parameters. Here's what you can do. Here's what I prefer you don't do. Here's the, the fence, I guess, that we can play in. But inside of that, go crazy. Do whatever you want to. Be as creative as you want to. And I'm inside, you know, like the teacher. I'm here. If you need me, come talk to me. But otherwise, you know, stay within these parameters, but you're free to do whatever you want to. It is amazing how much they thrive. And then that playground can get bigger and bigger and bigger as they fill mm. up the playground that they've been given. The person that says, well, I'm an empowering leader, they just kind of say, there's no fence, there's no boundary, just go and get back to me in 45 minutes. They tend to play it even really safer and closer to the vest because there was no clear expectation. There is no fence in a sense, no boundaries. So they tend to be more conservative because they, again, don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So they they tend to pull back. Your analogy there is talking about the boundaries and stuff. But what struck me listening to your story, you said in both cases, the, the teachers, people watching them were inside. Mm-hmm. What would happen if at one school, the teachers were outside, like all up in the kids' business, do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's where the micromanagement is. So it's it, for, again, think of a child. If, if you truly want a child to grow and to mature and to be able to you know, make it in the world on their own, mom and dad can't be there all the time. The teacher can't be there all the time. They, mm. they need to be able to figure it out on their own, kind of get away from the school in a sense, get, get out there, interact, grow, and expand, get outside of their comfort zone. And, and so to me, leadership is very similar to that parent-child relationship or teacher-child relationship in that if you give clear boundaries and let them do what they want to do, and you are not there. You don't have to micromanage. They know they can get to you if they need to, but they're given the autonomy to be able to do what they want to do inside of those boundaries. That's where you really see them thrive. That's where they really grow. It reminds me, um, (laughs) so we have a trampoline in our backyard, and I always tell the kids, you know, if you're going to jump, 
I'd rather it be one at a time and two at most and never three mm-hmm. because, you know, trampolines get kind of dangerous the more people you put on them and they always are fighting back. And I even tell them why, you know, if you get more people on there, there's a chance you're going to get, get double bounced or whatever, fall off, hurt yourself. And I, I can tell them that all the time. But recently there was a situation where some neighbor kids were over, you know, they knew the rules, they decided to go against them. And lo and behold, five minutes into it, my daughter comes running in. She's crying. She got double bounced off the trampoline. Now, I feel like even though I set the boundaries, I told her what to do, you know, she still had to find out for herself that there were some negative consequences, even though I lined it out for her. Life lessons. (laughs) And we learn our background, you know, these file cabinets that your daughter's setting up in her brain right now is through past experiences. Either you've trained her, talked to her, or she's experienced it, or something is going to influence the way she lives her life for the rest of her life. And so there's consequences to all uh, decisions that are made, you know, and we can only as parents or as leaders inform, here's what I believe is the right thing to do. But so even if you're a well-intentioned leader and you clearly lay out why you're wanting people to act the way you want them to, they may go, they may stray and they may find the consequence themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And the question then becomes, you know, how many times are they double and triple bounced off the trampoline before you have to, you know, put tighter restrictions in place to where, you know, they can't be empowered to be left alone in the backyard because they continue to violate the rules over and over and over again. You know, I haven't seen any more, you know, multiple person infractions on our trampoline since then. So (laughs) maybe that worked, right? Pain typically fixes (laughs) that. They tend to figure it out on their own. You know, I'm asked then, okay, so if I'm naturally, my, my natural instinct is to be a controller or my natural instinct is to be an empower, but I tend to, I give way too much. You know, I tend to let people take the ball and run with it to a point to where I, they, they do stuff I don't even want them to do, but it's too late at this point. And I feel like trying to take stuff away from them makes me feel you know, like a controller is bad and power is good, but how do I find that medium mm-hmm. area where I can kind of manage what's going on and make sure it's done correctly, but at the same point, not strangle them with, you know, micromanagement and uh, how, how do we do that? So when I'm working with leaders, the first thing that I have them do is, is understand if you were to kind of draw a circle in a sense, in the very middle of the circle, you write core work and the core work is, what is it that we have to get done? What is it that we got, you know, that we have on our plate right now that we have to get done and that I need my team, the people that are entrusting me as their leader, what is it that we have to accomplish? Then on the outside of that core work, all the way around it, we start writing all the different things that have to happen to support that core work Mm -hmm. and how each and every one of us are intermingled in the support of what that core work is. And then we empower each other to be able to do the function that we have to do as long as we're continually focusing on the core, the core work that has to get accomplished. Mm -hmm. What we find in organizations is that leaders get very good at managing their component of the company Mm -hmm. and forgetting what the overall core work of the organization is. And when they get too silo driven and they start focusing just on what my team does and how we do our job and, and, and don't interlink it to the overall organization, that's when there tends to be a little bit of a gap where productivity drops. It's kind of like if you have a helicopter and you have all the people that 
produce all the individual components. And the guy who has the tail rotor, he's like, man, mine works really good. But the guy with the top rotor doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's just going to spin around in a circle and crash, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so if we don't constantly remind our team that what we do is part of a much bigger vision here and that what you do needs to be tied to the strategy of the core work of the overall organization, they tend to lose some of the meaning of what their job is. I like your illustration when you talk about high-performance organizations, about lifting a table Mm -hmm. that everybody has to lift their side because if someone decides not to, the table will fall over. So, you know, I also picture like, like a glass of water on the table. So not only are we lifting the table, but it has to be even and steady on all sides or this is not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And there takes coordination and strategy and everybody has to be competent. Everybody has to be able to carry their own weight for as long as it takes to get the project done. There's a, a number of analogies that go with it, but it's, you'll find that if you can communicate, you can have eye contact with each other, you trust each other. All of those things that we continue to talk about are the foundation of being able to lift the table and the exercise would be, and here in my office where we're doing this podcast right now, I have a glass tabletop to my table. If we put a marble on the center of that and all of us on our team stood around the edge of the conference table and we all picked it up at once and we said, okay, the goal of this project is to make sure that that marble never hits the ground. And we can't talk to each other. We can't look at each other. We can't communicate at all, but we need to keep that marble on there. Then we're trying to do it completely out of instinct. Now that marble's going on the floor. That so marble's quickly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if we say, okay, before we do this project, we're going to put that marble there. But before we lift it, we're going to talk strategy. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about what is the core work here that we have to get done. We need to make sure that marble stays on there. Okay, what, what, are, what can all of us do to make sure that that marble doesn't get off the table and how are we going to communicate? How are we going to give feedback? You know, are we going to count to three before we lift or, you know, what are we going to do? And we plan it out. We put a strategy together and we all lift at the same time. We trust each other. We communicate. We work as a team. There's a much higher chance that the marble will stay on the table a lot longer than if we do it the other way. And I also to extend that a little bit farther, I find some companies are set up a certain way and it may not be the most, the optimal way to set up. So the illustration would be say, you know, there's three guys, hey, we're always on the left side of the table. And then we leave Margie over here on the right side of the table. So she's got a full half of the table to lift. And us three are over on this side, maybe we need to reallocate where we are yep. around the table. So in a company, like, maybe you need to look at the structure and say, why is it set up this way? Are we dropping the ball on one side? Because we're not, you know, we don't have the most efficient setup. One of my absolute favorite exercises that we do is called the box factory. And it, uh, it's a couple hour exercise, but it is very powerful and it helps organizations understand what a traditional organization looks like versus a high performing organization. And the whole point of this business simulation is to, to run a factory in a traditional format where we make and produce boxes, mm -hmm. little paper boxes, and then we empower the team. And, uh, after we gone the traditional route. We empower the team to redesign the factory, to come up with better ideas, to put the right people in the right jobs, to train, to get better equipment, whatever it might be. And then we, we say, okay, now, now let's run the business simulation again and see what kind of results we get. And almost 100% of the time we get better results. We produce more product. We have a better work environment. Leadership stress goes down. I mean, all the way around, it's a better uh, environment when people are empowered 
because they understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they understand the strategy and, and the goals that we're trying to accomplish. What you will find in organizations is that the longer people stay inside of an organization, their wisdom of how things are run is a positive but it can also be a negative if it's not tempered because they get into, you know, this routine of that's the way we do it here. You know, we've tried that before. It didn't work. They start using that and empowerment to people that have, you know, they're somewhat in a rut in a sense. Empowerment can mean we're just going to do it the easiest, fastest way that I've always done it not think of a new and creative way to improve the process. I've had that experience before where I worked on a team and somebody was in charge of a certain process and they did it a certain way and no one really paid much mind because it did get done, but it did seem like they were working quite a bit. And then when that person left and somebody had to fill in that role, they looked at the process and went, man, they were adding all these extra steps. They were adding all this extra stress on themselves and they weren't asking for help appropriately when they could have. Because, you know, not all of this had to be their task. And then it took that person leaving after they'd been with the company for a very long time to realize that they needed to look at their process. Right. Yeah. Very inefficient. Yeah. There's a cartoon I saw one time. It was a guy was digging this hole in the ground. And the guy said, so what are you doing? He said, I'm digging a ditch. And he says, there's an awful close resemblance to a ditch or a grave. Which is it? <laughs> and it was, you know, the analogy of it was, you know, sometimes we get into a rut mm -hmm. and we, that rut is also a grave. We just don't know how soon that rut's going to turn into a grave. And the more we dig that rut, the closer we are to being non-existent. And if you dig that rut, that ditch big enough, at some point you can't get out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can't get out. You got to change the mindset. So yeah, one of my biggest tasks, and I continue to work with with leaders on this, especially type A leaders that like, you know, their their natural tendency is to control, not because they think it is absolutely the best, you know, intellectually they understand they need to empower because they can't just control everything. And they want a vacation someday, right? Yeah, eventually they do. The problem <laughs> is emotionally they struggle with giving up control. They struggle with the fear of what will happen if I give up control and it's done wrong. They struggle with that paradigm of trusting that other people will be able to do it as well as they can. And they also get some, some comfort or satisfaction out of being the person that has all the, the answers. They really like that control side and control in a negative way of if you want it done right, you got to come to me because I'm the person that knows all the answers. And if I train and teach other people where the answers are, then I lose some of my own status and some of my own ability to manipulate or control or, uh, and that's a power play. Mm -hmm. And and I working with senior leaders, I have to help them understand that power doesn't come from manipulation. It doesn't come from micromanaging. It doesn't come from fear that those are all short lived leadership styles that are going by the way of the wayside. They're, they're just not relevant as much today as maybe 20, 30, 50 years ago, you could get away with it. Today, there's way too many options for employees to be able to do something different. And that empowering leaders, even though it might feel outside of their comfort zone and it doesn't feel natural to them, is by far the best way to lead an organization is to empower people, trust them, give them the autonomy to be able to do the work. As long as it's within parameters, kind of that fence on the playground, let them do it. 
and provide positive feedback, provide constant communication with them to let them know they're doing a good job, not doing a job, not doing a good job and what we can do to improve. I would see also like if you're a command and control type of leader and you're trying to transition, the employees immediately underneath you are going to have this fear now because the boss had always always put the burden on themselves to get everything done. Mm-hmm. And now they say, well, I'm going to put more on you because I'm a trusting, empowering leader. How do you break through that fear of the employee? Like, well, I don't want to be on the hook for all this now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I have a client that I'm working with right now that this is the situation. This, this client is a type A personality, very much a control and demand environment and been very successful building his business in that environment. He doesn't see himself that way. Uh, that's a, a blind spot. But, you know, he feels that the control side of it is because of what we do for a living and because of the way I built this business, you know, this is just what it takes to be successful in this industry. The truth is, is that his business possibly could have been bigger or less stressful or more profitable, all kinds of different factors. If some of the empowerment was given to the right people, his stress level would have dropped and can drop more profit, all kinds of different stuff. And so the only way that his team now and his team struggled to see if this leader will ever change and they don't believe he will. And even though he said it in the past, you know, he's always reverted back to his natural state or comfort zone. Mm -hmm. The only way for this leader to actually change is he has to have a strong accountability partner to make sure that when the natural tendency to slip back is there, he has someone to call him out on it. And that's where I've been able to come in, work with him and his team to be able to say, yes, in the past, he's committed to change behavior, but it hasn't worked. This time, I believe it will work if he will continue to work on it and be accountable to someone other than himself and be able to see how empowering his team is going to be able to benefit everyone involved. It's not going to happen overnight, you know, but it, it will happen. Not to self-plug because it's kind of what we do here, but I think the idea of having somebody outside of the company being that person to tell the person, hey, you're getting off track again is probably good because there could be a conflict if it's like, well, I don't really want to tell the boss he's getting off the rails again because he's the boss. He could fire me. Yep, absolutely. And what happens is, you know, and, and there's a balancing act because in a lot of organizations, the boss does become close with a handful of the employees or all the employees. It becomes friends with them. They go out to eat. They, you know, do different things in organizations. And so sometimes there's a balancing act between employees feeling too comfortable mm. that they tell their boss way too much about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And the boss then tends to discount it because it's okay now you have an opinion on everything that I do you know to the kind of car that I drive and where I live and where I go to church you know they tend to discount it that way too so there's a balancing act and that's why yes a third party that can have an unbiased opinion can look at it and say here are the behaviors of a controlling leader here are the behaviors of an empowering leader where do you see yourself where do you want to be And what is the gap between where you are and where you want to be? And what can we do? What plan can we put together to help you transition out of controlling into empowering and make it stick? Make sure that your employees don't think this is a flavor of the month thing that you're doing and that it's going to revert back to your old habits. How do we make this a 
a lifelong change, not just a temporary change. I also like uh, when you talk about like a high performing organization, they have ownership in the company with the person that owns the company. And I think that's probably very important because the owner of the company or an entrepreneur has this kind of innate hustle because whether they get money depends on how well the company does. So you're always kind of like have this in the back of your mind, like we need to perform so we can have money so we can keep running the company. Yep. But for an employee, especially if you've been traditional for a very long period of time, the employee might kind of feel like, well, I'm just going to do my best and I don't know if it's going to directly affect our business, but I'm, you know, I get paid on the first and 15th, no matter what. So I have no, you know, real initiative to, sure. to follow or to look at the success of the company like the boss does. Right. Well, and so when we talk about high performance organizations treat employees like owners in the business, and they don't literally become owners, but they feel that ownership. There's a lot of transparency that has to happen by the owner of the organization to employees so that employees feel that that sense of ownership. It can make you feel very vulnerable too, right? Absolutely. And there's also a balancing act. So say, for example, that you know, the leader of the organization in, in this situation, we're talking about, you know, the owner of the company knows that they're in real trouble. I mean, they're on the verge of bankruptcy in a sense. How transparent do you become with your employees about that? A, it can lean one way and you can say, look, we're in real trouble. Here's our situation. I need your help. And if they, there's a high level of trust and, and loyalty, those employees may even, you know, temporarily take a pay cut. They may figure out a way to help raise capital. You know, there's all kinds of different things that those employees will do if they feel like there's a strong strategy and a plan moving forward. But if in a control and demand environment, and that's the way it's been for a very long time, if you all of a sudden become transparent and say, here's the current situation of the company, they start thinking, whoa, I got to bail ship quick. I got to go find another job because I'm here for a paycheck. I'm here because right. I do a job. I'm competent at what I do, and I don't feel any ownership or loyalty to this place. I, I'm loyal as the first and the fifteenth. Mm -hmm. And that culture, you can't go from being completely non-transparent to completely transparent quickly because it, it it'll throw the organization into chaos. Right. If you want your employees to feel a sense of ownership in the organization. A, from a leadership standpoint, you have to start with how does it benefit them personally? Because mm -hmm. even though we don't want to be selfish as human beings, we are. We are. <laughs> so it starts first with if I want more out of my employees, if I want that discretionary effort out of them, A, I have to be able to put myself in their shoes and have compassion and see what would it be like if I was them? So what do they want? And, and what do they benefit from it? And by the way, Study after study after study have shown that it's not always money, that there is a sense of pride, that there's constant appreciation for what they do. They, they like to work with people that are their friends. I mean, they feel comfortable there. All those things kind of play out ahead of the money side of it. But you got to get them to you know understand, put yourself as a leader in the shoes of the people that work for you, what motivates them. And then tie that to what is the overall goal and the strategy of the organization? What does it look like? And how does that role of the employee tie to the big picture of the company? And then how do you as a leader help them connect the dots between here's how you personally are taken care of and here's how by you doing a great job and feeling ownership and pride in the company is helping with the strategy and the mission 
of this organization long term, and here's how you personally will benefit from it. Right. I've I've talked about this before, but the leadership example that comes to mind whenever we talk about this sort of thing was I only worked for a guy for it was probably four months, so very short period of time. He was uh, the public affairs officer of a base I was stationed on, and I was temporarily sent to him to be the editor of the base newspaper. And I was grossly unqualified for it. I had run the paper on my ship, but my ship was doing like a one-page front and back, and this was a 17-page, you know, weekly, it was a big deal type of thing. And I felt very overwhelmed, but from him, I always got support. Whenever I had an obstacle, he was there ready to listen and to help me through it. But he also gave me a lot of leeway and let I, I wanted to change the way the paper looked and felt. And he was cool with that. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's try it. And he gave me the praise when things went well. And when things didn't go well, he took me aside and we talked about it and we fixed it that way. And I had a couple times where I let him down and that was fine. He let me know that it's not okay, but it happens. And to this day, when I think of good leadership, he didn't pay me anymore. Uh, you know, I'm in the military. I can't mm -hmm. get any more money. Yeah. But it was the way he treated me and the way he supported me that made me give more effort for him. Sure. Absolutely. Leadership is about relationships and relationships can be continually improved. They can be eroded. You know, relationships and uh, are unique to each individual and very effective leaders, high performing leaders understand that they understand that each person that works for them is motivated and driven out of maybe something a little bit different. And they're good at figuring that out. Trust is the foundation. I mean, that's where it starts. Good. Well, I will close then with saying that if you are listening to this podcast and you either work for an organization or maybe you see yourself as someone who is a controller or works in an organization that is very traditional, very controlling, uh, hierarchical, control and demand type environment, and you want to shift, you want to change that paradigm. There are very specific skills that you can practice, things that you can do, but it, it starts with clarifying the core work of the organization, clarifying the strategy, the mission, the vision, the values. What is it that we're trying to do? What business are we in? What is the core work that everybody in the organization ties into? And then look at all the leaders in the organization and see if they are focused on that core work and they, they run their, their teams or the people that way, or whether there's a disconnect and some are very controlling and some are very empowering and everybody in the organization is kind of led differently. I think getting everybody on the same page and, and doing the same, you know, the overall culture of the organization is the same way is going to produce much higher levels. And, you know, that's what we do here. That's what our partners around the world do. We have seen exponential growth in organizations that focus on that. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.